Global education and education abroad has evolved from more traditional semesters abroad to a suite of opportunities, including research, internships, and courses with faculty-led travel components. In this episode, we discuss a variety of international study opportunities and the impact that international travel can have on students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Josh McCowan. Josh is the Associate Provost for International Education and Programs at SUNY Oswego and author of a highly regarded book on international education titled The First Time Effect, The Impact of Study Abroad on College Student Intellectual Development. He is also the author of forthcoming chapter in Education Abroad, Bridging Scholarship and Practice, and other articles, chapters, and presentations. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you. Today our teas are... I'm having black coffee. Again. (laughs) (laughs) I have English breakfast tea today. I have Bing Cherry black tea from Harry and David today. I did have English breakfast tea at breakfast this morning at home. So I had some tea already. All right, good. I hope I'm in the right place. (laughs) Okay. As long as you're pumping tea through your system, we're good. (laughs) It's still there. (laughs) SUNY Oswego has been a leader in international education for quite a while and supports a wide range of programs. Can you give our listeners an overview of the range of programs your department supports? Sure. And thanks for noticing that as well. I think in the last three years, this institution has gotten some long-deserved national recognition for that too. We've always been a leader unto ourselves and I think within the SUNY system, but from several really important international education organizations like the Institute of International Education out of New York, Diversity Abroad, and the ASCU, the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, all have recognized SUNY Oswego and our department's work in the last three years. Wow. Where to start? I think it was good for me to sort of articulate those recognitions because I like to think that we're being recognized for all that we do internationally. I think that sometimes it's one program or one location that may get the headline or the um, spotlight of the moment because it's interesting or maybe it's relevant or the curriculum is, is something noteworthy or important to the day. But really, I believe we are as comprehensive an international office, an international offering as you'll find. So we have many existing programs abroad that have been running for decades. So we're talking about semester-length programs to London and Paris and Barcelona, kind of the more traditional format and traditionally most popular destinations in Western Europe, and those still enroll. So in one case, the Paris Sorbonne program was founded the year before I was even born, and we're still running it, and we're still running it with pretty much the same model, although the offerings have changed within it, but the structure is really comparable for almost, well, 50 years now. So we have a whole portfolio of standing programs that are traditionally designed and delivered. But the real action in education abroad has been in areas that I would call embedded programs. The word embedded means within the curriculum. And that's where the growth has been. That's where the real excitement has been. And it's not new anymore, but it continues to sort of surprise and astound in some cases, given what we do. So in those cases, individual faculty members lead programs abroad based on the courses they teach on campus. So to give some perspective, we probably now have at least 80 programs that regularly run 
through my department. And in any given year, 400 or this year, over 500 students studying abroad or spending some time abroad as part of their academic program this year. That's just this year. That's great. Yeah, it's astounding. One of the recognitions that we've gotten was from the Institute of International Education Generation Study Abroad Project, where we achieved our goal of 20% participation rate from SUNY Oswego undergraduates in education abroad, which is just huge for a college of our size and traditions. When I came here in 2001, I think we were sending abroad 3% of our students, and that was considered pretty good at the time. So those faculty-led programs, those embedded programs, entail a course delivered on campus. In most cases, they can be standalone, like in the summer or January, but typically it's a course delivered on campus during the semester. And then students take a portion of their time, almost all do it at the end of the course, in January after fall semester, in March after quarter three on our campus, and then May, June timeframe after quarter four, spring semester. And this year, off the top of my head, I can't even remember the exact number we have. It's probably around 30 of those. And they're going to all continents. Our human-computer interaction program is going back to Australia. We have numerous programs in Asia this year, faculty-led, including places that you'd be hard-pressed to find study abroad, such as Myanmar, Vietnam. We regularly go to China, Japan, India. And then we have programs in the Caribbean and Central America, South America, and all over Europe, and two programs in Africa this summer. Have you hit Antarctica yet? That still eludes me, Rebecca. (laughs) You know, I'd love to be able to say all seven continents, but that's the last place. But I have high hopes, actually, and I know the exact program that I would like to go to Antarctica. (laughs) Yeah. We all have programs we'd like to send to Antarctica, but (laughs) some faculty, maybe. Ours would be for a good reason. (laughs) No, it's true. There's a new offering this year in South Africa, very challenging program to put together. It's out of our Cinema Screen Studies program. And the faculty members will take students for several weeks to do environmental filmmaking. And some of the students will be out in the bush filming wildlife and animals. Others will be near the coast filming sea life and things. And so it's that group that I hope goes to Antarctica to film penguins next year. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned Myanmar. Was there any concern there about the instability there in recent years? Well, that's a really interesting point, John. A lot of my work, and I've been fortunate in the 18 years that I've been at SUNY Oswego, I was at Syracuse University before that, we have had tremendously supportive and stable leadership, particularly from the president. And so it's not to say we don't care about risks. We do. We care a lot about it. But I operate from a position where I know that our campus leadership believes in international education, and we did long before it became really common. I mean, it is not unusual now for institutions to have 10% or more of their students going abroad every year. That's kind of the norm now. I believe that's the national average, actually. But we're still quite a bit more than that. But I know that my campus leadership supports this in principle. What we do from year to year, of course, changes. But we were running programs to Cuba long before it was easy to do that. Now it's relatively easy to send a program to Cuba. It may get harder soon again, but we were doing it when it was a really rare endeavor. We have had programs that involve being on boats that require competent swimming ability. We have had programs that climbed mountains, so literally, like Kilimanjaro. So yeah, there are always risks. So the risks can be political, they can be health, they can be personal safety and security. So we've never shied away from that. To me, the question is, what's our business there? What reason do we have to go? I like to say to new staff, for example, that I don't just throw a dart at the world map and decide we're going to open a program there. And I think this gets at the organizational power of SUNY Oswego and properly done how international education anywhere can fit into an institution's culture. 
In the case of Myanmar, it was an initial relationship I made through one of my volunteer activities. I was a volunteer mentor to a program essentially that was providing distance learning tutorials to would-be international educators in Myanmar. So these are people who were trying to develop the skills, the abilities that I have and others have here, but in a country like Myanmar, which was really opening up after many decades of military dictatorship, arguably still is opening. It's not quite opened all the way, but it's more open than it was. So they were trying to instill, and there was a grant for this, to instill that ability in Myanmar higher education institutions so they could become more globally connected. And so I volunteered for that. This is what I do in my spare time. It complements it very well. <laughs> I know. I look for interesting activities like that that do complement what we do, but also that I found interesting because I didn't know much about Myanmar. And so I was paired up with a medical doctor who had a, essentially a private medical school, and then he was trying to become more internationally aware. So long story short, he eventually visited us here in SUNY Oswego. We hit it off, and I introduced him to several faculty members, and one of them made a good connection there on her own, and now she's leading a program, our first ever to Myanmar, and particularly looking at transitions from dictatorship to democracy. And she teaches in our political science and global international studies department. So you can see right there, I'm always looking for that, and I hope it's been successful across the board. I'm open to any faculty member who has any interesting idea, and sometimes I try to pair them up if I think there's an interesting link that I can help make. And if the faculty member is interested, right, Rebecca, mm -hmm. wants to go to India and look at art and culture mm -hmm. there, the yeah. Czech Republic. and then soon Czech Republic, I'm open to almost any good idea because I know in the end it benefits our students. That's what it's about. It makes Oswego a more interesting campus. It makes our education stronger. And I know from a research standpoint that all those things contribute to a student's intellectual and academic abilities in ways that we're still just beginning to understand, but I think are more and more proven. And we should know that we did record an episode a few months back where we had two people talking about one of their study abroad experiences. So two faculty members, Casey and Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes if anyone wants to hear about the faculty side of the experience. And we'll be interviewing Rebecca when she gets back yeah. sometime this fall. Do faculty-led programs attract a different mix of students than the full semester abroad programs? I would say, in all honesty these days, no. Because our student population is, from my standpoint, and we, they're all facing similar challenges, similar obstacles, and are excited by similar things. And I think it's important to say that to an audience who might not be as familiar with education abroad, because study abroad, as we used to call it in the old days, it really used to be an elite activity. And it was something most students didn't do. I never could have done it had I not gotten a really good scholarship as a student. And so it used to be a boutique activity. And it really isn't anymore. And I would say that any institution that wants it to be mainstream can. It's not that complicated to do. You just have to believe in yourself, have some funding and staffing but even after a while, that can become self-sustaining. So we no longer are looking to create a program that students have to really, I don't want to say like be selected for, but that is how the industry used to look at study abroad, that you had to be really a special kind of student. You had to be an ambassador, which is a term I reject actually, an ambassador for your institution, ambassador for your country. That used to be the mindset. And so by definition, it was exclusive in the old days. And so the current thinking, and I think anyone who wants to expand it needs to really embrace this, is that it's an activity potentially every student can do. And when you go there, you have to accept who your students are. And our students are bright, and they're ambitious, and they're articulate, and they're maddening, and they're naive, and they're <laughs> stretched for time, retention, and resources. All of those things. 
And if we're educators, we need to educate them. And education abroad is part of higher education. So I look at it that way. So in that sense, I think the students who go on faculty-led short-term programs or embedded programs, which is now by far the majority of our education abroad population, I think those are students who might have been introduced to the idea by their professor in that class. And that's what's kind of cool about it from my standpoint. By involving so many faculty members, we have the ability not just to have education abroad be promoted out of my office, but now I think I count over 30 faculty members this year are involved with our work directly. And they all have friends and colleagues and people know what they're doing. So I like to think that in all these classes around the campus, professors are talking about study abroad, talking about their program, and that if a student hadn't been to our study abroad fair or hadn't been on our website or one of our sessions, they could be introduced to it that way. And so I think potentially, yeah, potentially that student might have not have thought about it before, whereas a student going for a longer program, a semester program, even summer, might have been thinking about it longer because you have to prepare more. But these days, I really look at them as the same or very, very similar. I was thinking from the student side, we have a lot of rural students who often haven't traveled very much and that a one-week experience, say, might seem less intimidating or threatening, and it might open the possibility of study abroad to students who might be a little concerned about yeah. a longer-term experience. I think that that student definitely is still out there. Students from predominantly upstate New York were the traditional student population of this campus. But as we know, our campus is a lot different than it was 10, 20 years ago. And so I think now the majority of students are from Metro New York City area. I know in my class, I teach global and international studies on campus. I always ask at the start of the semester who has traveled abroad before, and I'm astounded how many already have. So I think it's becoming more common, and many students have relatives in other countries. They may not think about international travel as part of an education yet. could be just visiting family or vacation or something like that. So I think in that sense, we still have the opportunity to reach people with education abroad, even if they've traveled before, but to think about it differently, to think about their travels as part of their overall academic experience, maybe even as part of a larger campus effort to have them grow and develop into the best students we can. So I think that's why I think about study abroad in those terms. And it's great to come on a show like this because I realize that a lot of people don't know that. And it's something which in our profession we take for granted now. But it's important to keep expressing this to larger audiences that there are regular high school programs that go abroad. I was at the airport not long ago, and one of our faculty colleagues was picking up, I think, her middle school-aged daughter who had just been on a school trip abroad. Kids are doing all kinds of things. By the time we get them, many of them may have had that travel experience, but it's still up to us to take them where they are and move them forward. I actually had traveled abroad when I was a freshman in high school to France, Germany, Switzerland. I know that as a student, you know, I came from a working class family and I never thought of travel mm -hmm. abroad as something that could possibly be something that I could do. But as a graduate student, I presented a paper abroad and that was my first mm -hmm. international experience. And it opened up so many doors and now yeah. I try to take every opportunity <laughs> to travel, as you know. <laughs> but, you know, it really changed things for me. And so I think you're right that faculty are reaching some of the students by talking about things in the class. I taught a freshman class this year, a first-year student class, and we have a oh, couple yeah. of first-year students going with us to that's the Czech great. Republic, oh, that's a great you know, story. who had never traveled. That's a great story. I love to hear that. <laughs> um, so, you know, so that's really exciting, and I think it works. I know in your book, you talk a bit about this first-time effect. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and the power it has on students? I'd be glad to, and that book came out 10 years ago now, 2009, and the research collected was a few years before that, and so... Yeah, I could probably use a second edition mm -hmm. with some updated research samples, actually, because 
in a nutshell, the important finding from that book, which it did hit, a, at least within our profession, it hit the audience that we were seeking pretty well. It spoke to how students change after they study abroad and through the process of education abroad in general. Because for as long as there has been something called study abroad, or now education abroad, and just real briefly, education abroad includes internships and research and service learning and things like that. So we say typically education abroad now. But for decades, people who did this for a living and professors who saw their students go abroad for a semester and come back saw something different about them. And no one could put their finger on it. No one could say, what is this? They just seem different. And are they more mature? Well, not quite. Are they more focused on their studies? Yeah, but that's not quite it. Are they more interesting and smart? Well, not always. But there was just something <laughs> about them that was different. And I felt that too. Again, I was from a similar background. And thankfully, the university I went to made study abroad really accessible. And I had a good scholarship. And when I came back, I remember my friends who were there who had not gone abroad. There was some like gap between us. It was hard for me to put my finger on. So I sought to do some research to try to answer that question. And it's far from answered, but at least I think I made a contribution. And there's a scale called intellectual development. And there are other meaningful ways to look at this kind of development in students. But the way I chose was the intellectual development scale because it really addresses students' understanding of complexity. So it doesn't test their understanding of world history or language or even culture, actually. It's not like a sort of an assessment of the study abroad experience in that sense. It really gets at more basic cognitive abilities. And can you, as a student after the experience, can you think of the world in more complex ways? Can you think of knowledge in more complex ways? Can you understand different perspectives? Do you look at your professors and other authority figures in your life, whether it's parents or a political leader or any supposed expert, can you look at them and understand that they're not all-knowing authorities. They just have been doing this longer, and they have different points of view even from what they have to express. So it's that kind of intellectual ability that it measures. And by and large, like a lot of studies, it did not show that all students have that growth. But I did find a subset of my sample that did, and it was statistically significant. And it was those students who had either never gone abroad before or who had gone abroad for such a short time that it was clear that it was not an in-depth experience. And that was really exciting. When you go into a research project like that, it was also for my doctoral dissertation, you don't want to assume anything about the outcome if you do it properly. You may have some hunches, but I wasn't expecting that. At the end, I wasn't surprised. In fact, I thought, well, yeah, that actually reinforces what a lot of us have been observing in this field for a long time, that that experience is powerful, but it doesn't have a cumulative effect, I realized, and I coined the term first-time effect. And that's been cited in quite a few other papers, books, and dissertations. I think it's stuck. And I think about the students we were just talking about, John, be students who have never been abroad before, or students today who, yeah, they've gone to the Dominican Republic to visit a family member, but maybe it was for a short time, or maybe it wasn't something that was part of a structured activity, and maybe it was a place they were already familiar with. That, I think, is still holds. I think that individual, when they go to a place that's far different and for a longer period of time, like an education abroad experience, I think that's still possible. So yeah, I'm proud of it. Now, the profession is looking, in, and thanks for mentioning the, the forthcoming book, Education Abroad, Bridging Scholarship and Practice. I was the lead author of a chapter focusing on academic development. And I got interested in that because there hasn't been a whole lot of research on this particular topic. There's been some. And that is, by academic development, we mean the student's capacity as a learner. So much more targeted to learning in a college setting. But you can see how it, it complements well the former research that I did, that students who come back from study abroad seem like they're more focused students, seem like they're more career-oriented. They seem like they have 
their act together a bit more than before. And so there are some ways to measure that too. It's far from proven still, but I think there is an emerging consensus that education abroad is one of those potentially high-impact activities that can, first of all, keep students in school, keep them on track to graduation, and help them in their academic careers and their professional careers in ways that it's not the only activity, but in ways that a lot of university experiences can't say. So I'm hoping to keep pursuing interesting and relevant research areas. But I must say, it's easier than it used to be, Rebecca, to do that, because there's been a lot of research over the last decade, especially about what I was interested in. So I found a lot of sources to pull from, a lot more than before, actually. So that's gratifying. You see a lot of students have interest in traveling to places like Western Europe, the standard staple places that you Mm -hmm. mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier on. But we also have a lot of programs that we've touched upon already that go to other, maybe more out-of-the-way places. Can you talk a little bit about how we get our students to be interested in those places and feel confident to travel in those places? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that, and you're a good example of this. I think the two projects that you and I were working on together, one was to India, the other to the Czech Republic, and both of those are in that category, I would say. The number of countries that we send students to keeps growing. We already mentioned Myanmar and South Africa. Just this year, we have programs also to Tanzania and Honduras and Dominican Republic, and we've had students in Russia, and I mentioned Cuba and Vietnam and India. It no longer really is like, I don't want to say noteworthy because it happens so frequently, but you're right, it is. It really is noteworthy. I would say this about that. If we were to promote a semester-length program to India, which we do, but not led by a faculty member, not tied to a course, not embedded in the curriculum in such a way that the connection between what that student is doing in a class or their major and that activity weren't so clear. I don't think that semester program in India would succeed. In fact, I can say that definitively because we have that and very few students choose to spend a whole semester in India. However, and I'm just using India as one example, Mm -hmm. when a faculty member deliberately ties what they're researching and what they're teaching about, to this trip. And if they're a good professor and the student looks at them not only as someone I can learn from for this course, but someone who can teach me something about life. So we're talking about mentoring more, actually. And if that professor is willing to put themselves out there and also be a program leader, which involves not just knowing your subject matter well, but getting on buses and subways together, sharing space, being in the, the same hotel, having breakfast every morning, seeing them on good mornings and bad mornings, and being willing to say things like, I don't know, we're going to have to figure this out, which happens on all of our programs all the time, no matter how well they're run. That actually creates the kind of authentic interaction that this generation, they say, craves for and increasingly demands. It's one of those situations, I think, where if travel itself is now not as difficult as it used to be for lots of reasons, but yet education abroad is still growing, the value that students see in it, I think, comes from that. It's learning Yes, I'm going to India, but I'm going with someone who I really want to learn from and I really see as someone who can help me understand this place. Maybe going there for a semester is too intimidating. Maybe they don't see the value in it either. And so the role of faculty in those cases is crucial. They have to be the people who are willing to put themselves on the line, really, not just the program. The students say, I'm going to India with you. They're not just going to India, they're going with you. So I think that really drives the impact. Can you talk a little bit about how when we take students abroad, we help them make sure that they're not reinforcing stereotypes and assumptions, but actually learning about culture and growing? I think we should do that in all of our courses, of course, on campus too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and others have done a lot of research on intercultural development, for example. It's not really my area. But I think it's incumbent on all of us when we're in this role to do our homework 
and make sure that students do see the country authentically. It's little things. Like I remember one of the programs that we had to Paris, which again, a generation ago, we would have presented as Paris, a city of lights, and really just shown them the beauty, the art, the grandeur, all of which is there. But I remember talking to this professor about the other Paris, the working class Paris, the very racially diverse Paris, the Paris that was the seat of a vast colonial empire at one point. There's a different Paris too than the city of light and art. And so I helped her construct an itinerary with this in mind. So it could be a small thing. Like, for example, from the Paris airport, from Charles de Gaulle airport into the city, rather than take a bus, you could take a train. And when you take that train, you go by neighborhoods and you see graffiti and you see things about Paris that are really not beautiful. They're authentic and they're important for different reasons, but they may not have all been what that student had in mind when they first thought of the idea of Paris. So I think if you approach study abroad that way and make conscious choices, and then deliberate steps that eventually become an itinerary, and you're thoughtful about it, you should get there. There should not be an opportunity for a student to go someplace and come back and just say, it was awesome, and only be able to talk about fun things that they'd seen in books before, now they see in real life. That's a tourist trip. And so education abroad really, these days, this is what really we should be doing. We should be constructing programs that add to students intellectually and academically, and as faculty who lead programs, to make sure exactly what you said, that we are showing them the authentic reality of places, even if it differs a little bit from maybe what the student had in mind before. That's our job. I think one of the interesting things that happened when we were in India is we went to the Taj Mahal in May when it's hot, and we were there when mostly Indians were traveling. So it was mostly Mm. families that were traveling from other parts of India. And so that experience was very different than a touristy kind of experience that you might have had at a different time of the year. So we ended up having a lot of discussions about the difference between, oh, we're an international group and we put our shoes here (laughs) and really having to break that down. So that was an interesting learning moment that was far more learning than one might have thought. We went there because it was an important architectural work, actually, for the the course content that we were teaching. But it ended up being this much bigger learning moment. You're speaking also to the importance of faculty preparation and credibility in that moment. And again, if this is for an audience of people who work at institutions that maybe are not quite there yet, or you're aspiring to that, one of the main points I made when I give presentations and talks on this is that it isn't that hard to get faculty to that level. Some faculty come equipped already. Maybe they were from the country where they're traveling to, or they travel there already, but most don't actually. And so as part of our administration of education abroad, I build in to budgeting and I build into the sustainable operations of the department funds for faculty development travel. Before I ever want a faculty member to go abroad with a group of students, they need to go there themselves and learn those things and chart out for us what is that ideal itinerary. Now we have to make choices, we have to make good choices about how we use funds like that, and there's a competition for it and it's overseen properly. But we do have in that sense, it's almost like a company might have a a research and development R&D aspect to it. In a way, it's that. It's making sure our faculty are developed. And I think at this campus, that was not always widely embraced. It is now. And I see faculty members who have just been hired come to me and say, I heard you have some travel funds. Word's getting out even before we actually announce it each year. But if we do that well, we'll ensure that the program is safe and properly run because that professor, is, when they're a program leader, they are the institution. No one else is with them in most cases. I'm not there in almost all cases. Other staff usually don't accompany programs like that. So if you're halfway around the world, even if you have a good itinerary and good trip connections and things like that, you're responsible for everything, really. 
And so we make sure faculty are as prepared as possible for that. And I think that's a key to the success of it. It's work, and I think you could attest to that. It's still work for the faculty member, but you're not doing all the work. You're supported and prepared by the institution as much as possible. And together, if we do those things well, all of a sudden you go from 3% to 20% participation. You go from having maybe one faculty-led program in the summer to 20 or 30 a year. It's incredible. Yeah, and you pick up, if you're lucky too, and put yourself out there, one or two national awards that people find and say, hey, you're doing something special. Because I think we've been doing something special for a long time, and it's nice to see that. And we should know that about 23 to 25% of our audience is from outside of the U.S. Oh, so if there's great. anyone from institutions that <laughs> might like to establish a relationship, we'll include Josh's contact information in the show notes. My staff are going to kill me, though. We have too many programs. No. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes my staff, who are great, they're incredible people and all true believers. You have to believe in international education. I will say that for faculty who don't think it's a lot of work, once they get involved and realize it's work. But if it's work you believe in, it doesn't feel like work. And that's what we try to do. But sometimes they think I never say no to a program idea. And I do. I do say no sometimes. But there are times when I think, oh, that just sounds really cool. We got to do this. <laughs> we got to try this. And we have enough experience, I think, and connections that we make most programs doable. And when it's not, I will pull the plug on something if I have to for various reasons. But usually we go for it. You talked a little bit about some of the preparedness for faculty mm -hmm. in terms of traveling ahead of time. But are there other things that faculty can do if they're going to take students abroad to make it a really effective experience? I think that it's not wholly dissimilar to classroom teaching in that I think you have to see yourself as others see you. I think a good teacher does that. I mean, I'm not an actor, but maybe that's what an actor does. Be able to see how students might view you. I think that the difference is it's 24-7. So imagine that you're with a group of students all day, every day. And again, not just an hour and a half, twice a week. That's different. I have gone to the lengths of having a mandatory training with all faculty. I used to do it much more informally, but for lots of reasons, not just the risks abroad, but I think with success and growth comes scrutiny and attention, and you have to be prepared for that too. So whether it's students with disability issues or Title IX issues like that, as well as some of these more far-flung locations that involve longer flights and riskier scenarios. We just have to be more aware of the preparation and training and kind of legal compliance, for lack of a better term. So I do have a mandatory training session for faculty, and I go through those things. And yeah, occasionally we scare some people off, I guess, because the idea doesn't turn into a proposal and never turns into a program. So I think it's important to be clear with faculty like that. I will repeat that overall, we are growing and growing strongly, including the number of people who are requesting to lead programs and then leading programs. But it's not unusual for someone to say to me, you know what, I didn't realize how much student contact I was going to have. And it makes me wonder what they did think. Maybe they thought that... <laughs> They'd the, meet for an hour a day and I don't send know. them off on their own. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. I'd rather find that out before they lead a program. But I think maybe they're thinking about traditional models of education abroad. Maybe it would be at a study abroad center where the students would just be hanging out with each other and be supervised by someone else. And they're really not. In most cases, it's a traveling type program. Students are at a hotel or residence, or in the case of a more outdoorsy program, they might be at a lodge and they're together. There is no one else. And so I think that does put off some people and that's okay. I'd rather know that up front and have someone decide, no, I just don't want that amount of responsibility. Because students are demanding. They expect certain things. They still expect you to be a great professor. In fact, maybe even more so than on campus. But faculty have to watch out for students' mental health, their physical health, their interrelationships. They assert things. They have to administer discipline at times. There are aspects to this. In a way, when I say they are the institution, I mean, imagine all the offices on this campus rolled into one person. That's kind of what it is. 
but it's also super fun. And I think the people who thrive in it realize it's a really unique opportunity, not just to talk about what you know, but to be the person you are or think you are in a global setting. And or a lot exciting. of the things you don't know. Right? <laughs> to learn. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because yeah. you learn together when you're abroad. There's things that you just don't expect or whatever. And you yeah. investigate and you learn together. That's what I meant by authentic. It's interesting how that word is being used so much. There are so many ways to travel. You can go online, go on some vacation site. It's easy, much easier than it used to be. And there are so many ways to learn about the world. You can watch PBS. You can watch documentaries. You can listen to podcasts. So to be special, it has to be different. It has to be something really targeted and led well and interesting. So I think when we do that, students are drawn to it because the result is something intense. And that's when the learning happens, right? We wish every class of ours on campus were like that. <laughs> I wish every class was like that, but usually it's not. Education abroad properly constructed, it can be, especially as a faculty-led model. It's a shorter model. If you plan well, it can be really high impact in a short time. As we bring in more students from New York City and from traditionally underrepresented groups, the average income of many of these new students may be relatively low. How can low-income students afford international travel? For higher education in general, this is one of the biggest questions of our times, right? How can we get this incredibly bright and ambitious population of young people in our country educated and prepared for their own futures, but also our future, our collective future? And I do believe education abroad plays a part in that. The growth in it has not come without, I think, some really creative approaches to that very question. So I've tried very hard to keep our education abroad programs as affordable as possible. In some cases, a student can choose a semester-length program, for example, that doesn't cost them when all is said and done that much more than being here. I try as hard as I can, controlling what I can control to keep costs as low as possible. And there are various ways to do that. If I can refer to another publication I did, our main professional organization is called NAFSA, N-A-F-S-A, and they have a guidebook, a handbook to international education and education abroad in this case. And they asked me to write a chapter on strategic planning for education abroad. And I included this aspect of it in addition to the other things we've talked about, and that's budgeting and financing. I really am a strong advocate that in all endeavors, you get what you pay for, you get what you invest in. And so I think many institutions don't understand fully how important it is that the international office or the people responsible for putting programs together have certain discretion over decision-making that differ from other aspects of what the university does. Through my department, we deal with vendors all over the world. We deal with their airlines or tour providers, banks, and bill-paying services. You have to be able to do that. If you put that in the same structure as folks who are buying copy paper on campus or contracting with vending machines, it just doesn't work and it won't succeed. It flat out will not succeed. So SUNY is a pretty progressive institution, actually, system-wide for this. There are some mechanisms in place, little things like being able to transact in currencies when the value is favorable to you or being able to shop around for the best airline deals or prepaying expenses that you know you're going to have. Things like that, that as long as it's all documentable and able to be reviewed, there's nothing wrong with that, in my view. But there has to be some, I think, understanding that international education is different. And this institution, I'm quite fortunate, there's always has been a view that, of course, accountability, but discretion. And so if you look at it that way, and not every program that runs makes a profit, not every program that runs even meets its expenses. If I had to cancel every program just because it might lose a dollar, we wouldn't be running a lot of the programs. And so the ones that can, or the ones maybe you're fortunate that there is some favorable cost outcome, maybe we're planning on an exchange rate being X and instead it's Y. And you, okay, I didn't have to spend as much on that. Well, how about the program that in the end you had to spend more on? 
if you approach it holistically like that, and I hope I'm doing that reasonably well, you can price programs in a way that aren't out of touch for students. I think it really starts there. And also, we have to make sure we are running academic programs. And so earlier when I said we're not running tourist trips, I think that applies to this discussion too. Students can use financial aid for this. They can. If it weren't tied to a course or if it weren't part of their academic experience, they couldn't. So I think it's incumbent upon us to never forget that. And then I think you have to look for opportunities for scholarships, grants, and other rewards for students. And we've done that on this campus. We didn't solve it, but we've done a lot. I think there are now 10 different scholarship or other grant award programs that students can apply for. I remember when there was only three and they were small. Now, that's a sizable number. We gave away over $100,000 last year in scholarship money to students. $100,000. And so that's sizable. It's you know, making an impact. It is. 18 years ago, I think we probably gave away under $5,000 total. So it's a staggering leap, and that has helped a lot. And I know many of my colleagues who do really toil because they can't get any traction on this at their institutions. My advice is always keep at it and also take charge of your own narrative. Even if you can only afford to run one program, run it really well, and then get as much publicity as you can for that program. Show how it's changing students' lives, because it is. Make sure you care and devote some time to really processing that. Tell that story. Keep telling that story. Someone's going to want to listen eventually and build, build, build. SUNY Oswego didn't always have this vast array of programs either. Look what we have now. It can happen even at a state institution that is a comprehensive college whose students are struggling economically. We can get there. If we can get there, others can get there too. We always wrap up by asking, what next? My latest research interests are still in international education, but uh, more policy areas. So I did a research study over the winter. I presented it at the International Studies Association Conference in Toronto in March, and it was well-received, and I'm going to expand on it. I'm really looking at how scholars, researchers, faculty members pursue internationalization in their own careers and for their own institutions. And in particular, I looked at China and Chinese scholars and researchers who come not just to SUNY Oswego in the United States, but who go abroad for significant periods of time to do research work. And I'm interested in it because if you look at that example, China is a country that was trying to catch up on a lot of things and I think has caught up on a lot of things. One of those areas has been higher education and internationalization of higher ed in particular. But what I started noticing here at SUNY Oswego maybe around 10 years ago is the number of Chinese visiting scholars, faculty members, researchers who come with full funding. And in many cases, it was full government funding. And I'm in a position to be able to see that. And some of them in the business school, some of them, I think you have one in the art department. Mm -hmm. And you say to yourself, first of all, where the heck is all this money coming from? And second, there must be some great incentive to push this out. We're not just seeing it once, we're seeing it a number of times every year. And so I started doing some research on that. And so I'm pursuing that. I think it's an area that needs to be looked at because there's a lot of interest in China right now to begin with. There's a lot of interest in whether it's the current dispute over tariffs and trade, whether it's over technology transfer, whether it's over national security. In our case, it's over this enormous country that still a lot of American students don't go to when they think about education abroad, but there is a lot of exchange and collaborative academic activity. So I'm kind of looking at what's going on with that. What is the purpose of it? What's the funding mechanism of it? What are faculty members who choose not just to go abroad with a group of students for a week or two, but to spend six months, a year in the middle of their careers? And to do so regularly, what kind of impact is that having on them as scholars, but also on the institutions where they work and maybe by the country overall where they live? 
to my knowledge, there's nothing comparable like that going on in any other place in the world, given the breadth of it. So I'm curious what's happening with that. And it also speaks, I think, to the broader subject of internationalization, because not that education abroad is old news or conquered. (laughs) There's still a lot of challenges with it. But I feel we really have made the case well that education abroad is important. And I think it's here to stay. No matter what today's challenges might be, I think it's here to stay. So what other areas of internationalization really are important? And increasingly, I'm looking at areas of the world that we don't have as much collaborative activity with and forms of international education that are different than just American students going somewhere because there's a lot happening. So I guess stay tuned on that. For our work on our campus, we continue to try to expand and diversify our offerings. And so I'm really excited this coming year. I expect our first program out of our new criminal justice major. We have our first program out of the health promotion wellness major this year. So there are still pockets of our own campus that have not been tapped for education abroad, but slowly and surely, we're getting to all of them, I think. Sounds like a lot of exciting things coming down the pike. Yeah, we're working hard. I'll keep doing it until I can't anymore. (laughs) It's great to hear about all those wonderful things and that expansion. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Oh, my pleasure. Glad we could do this. It's a rainy Friday here in Oswego. Just so unusual. I know, right? Well, thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.